0: So turn your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 8. I'm not going to read all of 8 through 10 this morning. I'll just read some selections that you can follow along with. And I I was caught unawares in first service this morning, so I'm going to mention it now. I did not choose the colors of my outfit on purpose, um, but you'll understand why I say that as I begin here. In Esther, chapter 8, verse 15, hear now the word of the Lord. and holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And down to verse 26. Therefore, they call these days Purim after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, Which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't seen it, there is a delightful animated movie called Megamind came out a number of years ago I love it Megamind takes the whole superhero story and kind of turns it on its head because Megamind follows the villain the bad guy Megamind who's a super genius and his goal all his life has been to defeat Metro Man who's kind of like a superman and to take over Metro City or Metrocity depending on how you pronounce it But the problem is that Mega Mind's not very good at what he does. And he's always failing to defeat Metro Man and win the city. Kind of like if if you have a different generation of cartoons, Wily Coyote always chasing the Roadrunner. What always happened? He never gets him. Except once. There was one time where Wily Coyote caught the Roadrunner. And do you know what he did? He had no idea what to do. He went to idea and said, You He was ready to catch him, now what? Well, the same thing happens to Metro, uh, Megamind when he finally defeats Metro Man and captures the city. The whole crowd is around him, the reporters, the police, the mayor, the people, and they say, what are you going to do with us? And Megamind suddenly realizes he has no idea. He didn't know what to do after he won the victory. He had no plan. Well, last week, we looked at the victory of God's providence through Esther, how He had perfectly timed and planned and organized, even down to the smallest detail, to make Esther queen and bring Mordecai into power and put them in a position to stop a plan that would have killed all of God's people in Persia. And we called it the victory of providence. Because as we talked about that word, we discussed how it's used to describe the way that God is completely involved in every detail of everything that happens and making sure that it happens the way He wants it to. And so providence, God has won the victory and overcome His enemies. Now what? Now what happens after the victory? Unlike Megamind and Wiley Coyote, God has a plan for what follows His victory. And this is a big and important question for us because we live on the other side of God's victory through Jesus Christ on the cross when He defeated sin and death. And we need to know, now what? What does it look like after the victory is won? And yet we're still waiting for the final victory of God when He brings His kingdom in all its fullness. But the question still for us, as we look to the Scripture and see that Jesus, as we just sang, has has defeated death by death. Death has no victory. The grave has no sting. Jesus said elsewhere in Scripture that he saw Satan uh, fall like lightning from heaven. He is now the strong man who is bound up and whose house is being plundered by Jesus. So now what? Now that the victory is won, what is the legacy of providence? What follows it? How do we live out the victory of God? Whereas Philippians chapter two asks the question, or well, doesn't ask it, but says, "Therefore, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence but much more in my absence, people of God, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." We have salvation. Now, what? What does it look like to work out? our salvation. And in these final chapters of Esther, we see the legacy of providence. We see how God's people live out and put into action the deliverance that they have received, that God so perfectly planned and executed. And from that, we can learn how God's people today, me and you, how we live out the salvation of God. And the first thing we see in how the the now what is the deliverance spread deliverance is spread for those that haven't been with us the past few weeks or who don't remember what we've seen the story so far is this there was an official Haman whose plan that he manipulated with the king was to give permission to anyone in the kingdom on a certain day to attack the Jews to attack God's people to kill them and to plunder them that it would be not only not against the law but they had permission to do so when the law went out, all of God's people were in distress. But God had placed Esther especially, and also Mordecai, in a special position to overturn this plan. And as we saw last week, it all worked out perfectly. Haman was defeated. He was in fact hanged for for this plan. And yet, the problem is, the law is still on the books. It can't be taken away. It was done in the king's name. It's an official law. And so what the king did is he gave Mordecai and Esther permission, gave them his ring and his authority to do whatever they thought best to overturn that law. So what they did is they made a new law that said, well, if you're going to attack the Jewish people, they now have the legal right to attack you back and to take your plunder and to take your household, which would make anybody think twice before attacking their neighbor if there's one more thing they had to do for this to actually work. It was a good idea to get the law in the books, but it's not going to happen unless they spread the word. And so in Esther chapter 8, it says a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, by the king's command. They went out to tell everybody what the new law was. Because what good is good news if people don't know it? Some of you heard me share the story before of my friends who had a car that had a a button on it. It was way back in like the, the 90s that said CD. Meaning that if you press that button you could start the CD player. And I was visiting my friends, you know, they lived in a different state, and they were giving me a ride. And I said, hey, that's a pretty cool CD player. Can we listen to some music? And they said, oh, we don't have a CD player. I said, sure we do. I see the button. Right there, CD. And they're like, no, no, it, the button is there, but we, don't, we didn't have a CD player installed in the car. It was a new car. They'd had it for a few months. Well, later that day, as we were opening up the trunk and taking some stuff out and putting some stuff in, I noticed there was a five-disc CD changer in their trunk. I said, "Well, look, you got it. you have the CD player right there." He said, "No, no, no. We, we didn't we didn't get a CD player. We don't have a CD player." I said, "Can we just try it?" So we put a CD in and started the car up, and the music played. And my friends looked at each other and said, "We have a CD player. <coughs> we didn't know what they, they had this all along and just never accessed it because they didn't know that they had it." And people of God, we do the same. We have we have something. That we don't access, we don't exercise, we don't live out because we don't realize what we have. What follows the salvation of God? What is the legacy of His providence? One of the things is the deliverance of God spreads. The news spreads telling you what you actually have now. The salvation is not just accomplished, it's applied. Much of the storytelling in these three chapters is about how the Jews in Persia not only heard the news that they have been delivered, but they acted on it. So that when their neighbors, a few of them actually did try to attack them, they fought back and they won the victory. People of God, the gospel is not just that God forgives you and has died for you. Jesus died on the cross. Yes, amen, we believe that. But it doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. You are... You are made righteous. You are justified. And those are big fancy words that we use and and use as if we know what they mean. But I always want to pause and make sure we think about what they really mean. Because whether you realize it or not, you want to be justified. And so does your neighbor. And so do your classmates. And so does your family. It's what we all live our lives seeking because what that word justified and that idea of being righteous means is that we want to be acceptable. We want people to look, up, look at us and say, that person is good. That person is acceptable. I like that person. That's somebody that, that passes the grade. And, and the problem is we desire that. We want to feel loved, acceptable, worthy. But we seek that acceptance, that justification, that righteousness in a hundred thousand other things in our life. We, we look for the approval of our classmates and our peers. We want people to think that we're attractive enough, smart enough, funny enough, wealthy enough. We want our, our superiors, our bosses to think well of us. We want some vague uh, them, some crowd out there to think well of us and approve of us, and we live our lives in pursuit of that. And what the Gospels tells you and gives you is that you're fully justified righteous made worthy made acceptable in the eyes of the only one whose opinion actually matters the God who made you and who made the world and who will judge you in the end despite all the judgments you feel and impose upon yourself in this life there's one judgment that matters what does your God think of you and in Jesus Christ he looks on you and sees righteousness Not a righteousness you give him, but a righteousness that he has given you. That's the good news of the gospel. That you are given not only righteousness, but the Spirit of God to make you able to do all that he wants you to do and to live the life that is worth living. At this church, we talk about living out the gospel together, and that's what we mean by that. That, yes, we're forgiven. We're redeemed, we're delivered, we're saved, hallelujah. But those are not just concepts that we think about. Those are real changes in us that we express and we act on and we live out. They mean something so that when I'm in class and somebody's being mean to me, I don't have to be mean back to them because I've got to defend myself and make myself look stronger. No, I, I'm accepted in God's sight. And I don't need their opinion to matter means that when I'm looking at my bank account and it's not where I think it should be and and the people around me on Facebook and in the neighborhood, their standard of living is, is looking a little bit better than mine a little more comfortable. I don't need to pretend to be what I'm not or to strive to be what I don't need because those things are not where I find my worth. That's the good news and that news needs to spread and it needs to be acted on. As the deliverance of God spreads through the land, we act on it. We fight against our enemies. But as Paul says, not against flesh and blood. The Jews had to fight against people who were actually coming in and trying to fight them. But the enemies we fight, the enemies of God that align against us are fear, anxiety, arrogance, lust, slander, gossip, false images about beauty and worth and joy and value. We fight against those things, and our king has issued his proclamation. But those things have no power over us anymore. And he wants us to live in light of that deliverance. As we sang recently at Christmas time, and at this church we sing it throughout the year, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. How far does the message of deliverance spread? It spreads as far as the curse is found. And look what happens in Esther 8 as that message spreads. In verse 15, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And everywhere in all the provinces, everywhere the kings command and edict reach, there's gladness and joy. But look at this last phrase. Many from the peoples of the country, many other people, declared themselves Jews. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now maybe there's a degree of, okay, there's going to be some fighting, and I want to make sure I'm on the side of the people who seem to have the power right now. Maybe, but we probably shouldn't see that as fear and terror of the Jews. Let's read that word fear more the way we talk about the fear of God in the sense of awe, respect, amazement. People who are not a part of God's community are looking in at the at the people of God and saying, something crazy is happening. Look at how how their fortunes have reversed. Look at how they have a man in power now. Look at what's going on. I want to be a part of that. Clearly there's some power at work there, and I need that. Just as in Esther's day, so today. As the providence of God is at work in your life, saving His people through Jesus Christ, that's good news. And that's news that, that people want, it's news that people need and it's news that they will respond to. But they need to hear it too. What good is good news if no one hears it? Do you realize, people of God, that you have in your possession the greatest thing in all history? The very gospel of God which your family, your friends, your neighbors are seeking and desiring and needing even if they're looking for it in the wrong place, looking for love in all the wrong places looking for love in too many faces? That's what we're doing. They're looking for what their heart's desire, and they're looking in the wrong place, and you know where it can be found. Romans 10, Paul tells us, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call on somebody that they don't believe in? And how are they going to believe in somebody that they've never even heard of? The news has not spread to them. And how can they hear when someone preaches to them? Deliverance has happened. Jesus died and rose again. Amen and hallelujah. But now that news needs to spread. And God in his wisdom has said that you are the ones who spread it in your own lives and to those who are waiting to hear. The next way in which we see the legacy of Providence in these chapters is that deliverance not only spreads, but deliverance is celebrated. In chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, they call these days Purim, after the Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in the letter and what they'd faced in this matter and, and everything that had happened to them, they obligated themselves and their offspring and all who became Jews and joined them. That without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written at the appointed time every year. They made it an annual celebration. The book of Esther is written in part to explain the celebration of Purim which is celebrated in mid-March this year. I looked it up. It's named after the poor, which would be the, the dice or the lots that Haman used to decide which day they were going to kill the Jewish people. And they said, let's name a holiday after it. Let's call it Dice Day, basically. You know, They were to remember that though the lot was cast and it was all down to chance and divination, God was in control. And God was victorious. Mordecai and Esther make it a regular celebration because as verse 26 said, because of everything that had happened to them. Something so significant as this should not be forgotten. God had engineered a perfect celebration, a perfect salvation, which they wanted to celebrate. He not only delivered them, He didn't just rescue them and get them out of a disaster, He did more than that, as chapter 9, verse 1 says, that on the very day when their enemies planned to gain mastery over them, it flip-flopped, the reverse occurred. And the Jews came out on top. They gained mastery over those who hated them. Such a salvation should be remembered. We, rem- we celebrate things because we want to remember them. Because they're important. They celebrate so that they won't forget it. What do we learn from God's people under Esther? We learn that the legacy of providence, what comes after God's salvation, is celebration. We ought to celebrate the victory of God. How do we do that? How do we Celebrate the victory of God. The victory of God in Jesus Christ. We celebrate it every Sunday as we gather together for worship. That's one of the ways we celebrate it. Whenever we gather as God's people in worship, we are going through the gospel together in our songs, in our prayers, in the word that we read and preach in the confessions that we share, even in the way that we put things in a certain order, we are rehearsing and practicing the gospel story. That God calls us to worship Him, and yet we are sinful. And as we repent of our sins, we, we receive and see and experience the grace of God, and then we are called into faithful service. That's what we're doing here. The point of our worship is not that you would all get some sort of spiritual or emotional high. The point of our worship is not that you'd come away, Oh, I learned some new things. I had more knowledge this morning. The point of our worship is not that you'd be able to check some box of your duty or obligation to God. Those things may happen, but they're not the point. The point is to glorify God by celebrating His victory, what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. We retell and we remember the grace of God to us. But there's more. Look at how they celebrate. In chapter 9, verse 22, they make the days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. I mean, what's a celebration without food to begin with? But they're also giving gifts to those in need. We don't celebrate God's deliverance just by talking about it, singing about it, and thinking about it, but also in joyful and merciful and generous acts towards those who need it. Now, I don't want you to move that the wrong way. I'm not saying that because God has saved you, you should be guilted and duty-bound and solemnly obligated to be generous. And that's not it. What happens is that when you understand what God has done, your joy overflows. As 1 John 4 says, we love one another and others because God first loved us. And the illustration I I like to give to couples that are planning to get married, many of them come into a marriage expecting that I am a half full cup, and marrying this person, they're gonna fill me up, they're gonna fulfill me and meet my needs. And what I like to illustrate is what happens if I bring two half full cups and they're both looking to the other to be full? Is either of them going to be full? Maybe one at a time doesn't work like that. I heard a, an example of this just this morning on my way into to work. I was listening, as we all do, to BBC. Um, I don't know how I got there. But uh, they were entertaining letters from, from listeners uh, about problems, life problems, and consulting experts to help them solve it. And the letter they were reading was from a, a man, uh, I believe, of Indian descent, saying that he was struggling because he was afraid all of his friends just wanted to be his friends because they wanted something from him. And he was always giving, 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 and felt like that. They only cared about what he could do for them. And the expert that they brought in was a Buddhist nun. And what she shared broke my heart. Because she said, what you need to do is fill your own cup full. Make sure. Generate an abundance in your own heart so that you have more to give to other people. And you, you know, on my way down Colorado Avenue thinking, how does a half-full cup fill itself up? You can't. You can't. You don't have the ability to fill yourself up so that you can be generous to others. And that's what the gospel says. It says, You have anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. The love of Jesus more than satisfies. It says, You have everything you need. And from that abundance, We celebrate, we give gifts, we reach out to those in need, we are generous. That's how we celebrate the deliverance of God by saying, He has filled me to abundance, to overflowing. Let me share that with others. I don't need the approval of others, so let me approach you and and see if I can supply what you need. See if I can help you and be God's grace to you today. So deliverance is spread and deliverance is celebrated and finally we see in chapter 10 that deliverance is secured chapter 10 verse 3 Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews popular with the multitude of his brothers but he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people Mordecai who had been lingering around the gates at the outside of the palace a lowly despised figure in the story at the beginning He's now second in command in the kingdom. He basically replaced Haman. What does that mean for God's people in Persia? Haman had been a threat because he hated the Jews and had power to act on his hate. But now his power is gone. And who has the power? Mordecai. One who is like them in every way. One who who represents them one who has their best interests at heart, one who has always and continues to labor faithfully for his people. Who now can threaten the people of God in Persia with Mordecai in charge? What enemy can come against them? None. Mordecai will stop them. Let's think about why that's important, not just for the Jews in Persia, but for us today. Salvation deliverance can be temporary. We can be saved for a short time, and then be in danger again the story of the hobbit you build their Baggins and there's a part of the story where he and his companions are being chased by goblins and they finally get away and as soon as they get safe and they're breathing a sigh of relief they're attacked by wolves and Bilbo in the story says what shall we do what shall we do escaping from goblins to be caught by wolves he said that and it became a proverb though now we say it out of the frying pan and into the fire in the same sort of uncomfortable situations the point is, there's, a t- there's situations where you can be delivered temporarily, but you'll still face many dangers and struggles. There's a kind of deliverance that doesn't last. It handles one moment of crisis, one hour of need, but more dangers will come. Like the frustration we feel if you encounter a homeless person and maybe you buy them a meal and hand them a meal, but in the back of your mind you're thinking, but yeah, what are they going to do tomorrow? What are they going to do in the next five years? Am I really solving their big problem? I'm helping them for the moment. It's possible for us to picture a scenario where God uses Esther to stop the threat of Haman, but then another evil official rises to power and picks up where Haman left off. That could have happened, but it didn't. Because God puts Mordecai in power to secure a lasting peace for God's people. And that's what we have in Jesus. God has saved us, rescued us, delivered us from what? Jesus, did you die to save me from my sins but yet still leave me vulnerable to the myriad of other things that might hurt me, threaten me, assail me? Some of us grew up with that view of salvation. God forgave me of my past sins in Jesus, but from here on out, it's, it's up to you. Is that what our salvation is in Jesus? No. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that God's victory is not just for a moment but for all time. Our deliverance is not questionable. It's secure, as Romans 8 says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, in favor of us, supporting us, if He is on Mordecai, watching over us, then who is going to come against us? And how do we know that He's for us? He has given us Jesus. If God gave us Jesus, do you think He's going to stop short of taking care of our finances? Do you think He's going to stop short of helping you resolve that issue with that hostile manager or classmate? Do you think He's going to stop short of taking care of what you really need if He's already taking care of your deepest need? He's not. Your salvation, your deliverance is secure. Now let me tell you what difference that should make in your life. The deliverance, the security of your deliverance gives you the freedom and I would suggest even the obligation to strut. I'm going to copyright that if the book has not already been written. Spiritual strutting. Before the deliverance of God, the Jews in Persia were cowering in fear. They had eyes on them. They were targets. People could meanly hunt them down and kill them on a day that was coming up. They were hiding out. They were probably not going out in public. They were concealing who they were. But now, but now with Mordecai, second in command in the kingdom, Mordecai in power, they don't need to hide. They don't need to be afraid. They can in fact go forth with confidence and boldness because of the security that Mordecai gives them. And to you, to God's people today, your Mordecai, Jesus Christ, is on the throne, reigning over His creation. His enemies have been shamed and overthrown They have no real power anymore. You do not need to live in fear. You live in confidence. Am I saying to be cocky and arrogant over other people? (laughs) Ha, ha. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. You're not. I'm better than you. No, of course not. What I am saying is that you live your life knowing that nothing, nothing, happens to you apart from the will of your Father in Heaven. And you don't need to be fearful of what the world will do, of what any government will do, of what any neighbor will do. You don't need to live in fear. They will, they can and they will work hard to undo your salvation and your security, but they cannot succeed in the end because your King is on His throne. You have a friend in high places. You've got a Mordecai, as chapter 10, verse 3 said, seeking the welfare of his people and speaking peace. Or as the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 4, we've got a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, so let us hold fast to our confession because we don't have a high priest who can't understand or sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been made tempted as we are yet without sin, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us strut. Let us experience the confidence of having Jesus on the throne. I could have done three points on that Hebrews passage alone. Hold fast to your confession. Don't waver. Don't compromise. Don't give up God's truth. Approach God with confidence. He's on your side. He's seeking your welfare. And know that whatever you lack Whatever you need, God in His mercy and His grace will provide it. As we sang earlier, before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea of a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My man is on the throne. My friend, my Jesus, secures my salvation. We began this with the question, What comes after the victory of God? Now what? How do we live in response to that victory? How do we work out our salvation? That's a good question because the reality is, as I said, we live in between the victory of the cross and the victory over all creation, right? And so that that victory over all creation, it's not real yet. It's it's not affecting us in all the ways that it one day will. The victory of God is already here but not yet here. And rather than undo everything we see in Esther about the legacy of providence, it actually strengthens what we've just seen. It is because we live in between those two victories that we need to spread the message of deliverance to one another, to every area of our life, and as far as the curse is found. It's because of that. It's because His victory is still on the horizon that we need to celebrate and remember and never forget the deliverance that has been won for us. And it's because we're still waiting for the final victory that we need to look to Jesus as our assurance of pardon said this morning. We need to look to Jesus as the one who secures what is promised. The one who is enthroned, who rules, and who will come again. And so as we're going to sing in just a minute here, our prayer, our hope, our song is this. Spirit, Holy Spirit, come, put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of His grace, reminding us and celebrating what He has done. We hear their calls and we hunger for the day when with Christ we will stand in glory. That's our song, that's our prayer. And because of all that God has done to save us, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in us to do these things. Let's pray to Him as we sing His grace today. Heavenly Father, thank You for the secure salvation that Your people have because of what Jesus has done. Though you still look forward to the day when with Christ we stand in glory, we also hear the cries and calls of the saints who line the way, the crowd of witnesses who testify to your goodness throughout the ages. And so Holy Spirit, equip us to enact and work out our salvation by spreading that deliverance, by celebrating at all times and walking in the security of Jesus on His throne. In His name, we pray with confidence. Amen.